welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. I am Dane Wallace, here again with the lovely Freya Spence, and today we are going to talk about how you can actually define health or what normal health is. Uh, Now, before we jump into that, just a quick reminder, you can find us on Instagram at move underscore daily underscore EDS and on our website at movewelldaily.com. So what is normal health? This is a very ambiguous subject. Uh, Even the CDC has a very lengthy description um, of what they consider to be well-being, which is where health fits. And within health, there are elements that are subjective and some that are actual metrics. For both, there are huge ranges of tolerance and normalcy. So today we're going to discuss how you can define it for yourself as a means to also understand the information and the claims out there. We're also going to discuss some of the things that we've normalized as a society that hold us back from health. Um, And as I said, some of these aspects are subjective, others are not, but exist within a huge range. So you have heart rate, blood pressure, blood markers, aerobic capacity, markers of strength, uh, markers of functional capacity of activities of daily living, all sorts of things. Right, Freya? Yes. Well, and uh, even with the ones that are both the subjective and the ones that have metrics, say like your heart rate, they're both important, right? How how well someone feels they can handle the demands of their life, that's important. You can't put it on a numerical scale and it will be different. I mean, there are questionnaires around that kind of thing to gauge subjective measures, but even then, really depends on the person, on their age, their environment, uh, their entire life situation. But I would say that even with the metrics, like say blood pressure or heart rate, there is a wide range. And most people, even if they know those numbers, don't necessarily know or aren't necessarily taught what influences them. So if you hear what your cholesterol levels are, okay, great, you know some numbers, but do you know what actions will influence them? Same with blood pressure. Do you know which actions will influence blood pressure reading? So it's, it, those are the things that matter for us as end users. It's very important you know, medically for people to uh, have those numbers documented, your blood markers documented, and so on, especially in the context of being unwell. But for you as a human... <laughs> The actions are really what define that side of your health. And then, of course, subjective measures are, are equally important because our sense of well-being is, is also going to influence what those metrics are. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's trying to understand, like, how do you feel when you're doing the right things? And, you know, what does healthy feel like, right? Some people live in this place where they feel like they're healthy, but they don't really know anything else because their baseline has been what it's been since they, you know, were kids and they grew up and they just became what they were. I remember when, uh, when I was an undergrad, as one of our uh, physical and health education in Queens, and one of our first classes, the prof was like, so who here is healthy? And I don't know, I think a smattering of us put up our hands and he's like, okay, well, what does that mean? What makes you healthy? And I'll admit I don't really understand or don't remember, sorry, where that conversation went or what was said in that class as for most of my classes back 20 years ago. Oh, God. <laughs> but yeah, health is so subjective. And so today we're going to cover a few of those things and just talk through some of the actions we can take to improve our health. Yeah. And um, Dane, do you want to kick us off with the discussion of gravitational pull and BMI? Because these days, most people, as soon as they 
if you ask them like what's healthy, the, one of the first three things that they'll mention is BMI or body weight as a measure, and that has a significant number of flaws with it. Yeah, so body weight is a man. It's a it's a really nuanced topic, and what we've normalized in society is that smaller is healthier. Like basically, you can kind of take that: the smaller you are, the healthier you are. Period. Hard stop. Is kind of just that what we've normalized, and BMI is the metric that the medical institutes have started using or not started using has used for a long time now uh, to put us into this narrow band of health. Which is crazy, because if you look at the history of BMI, and I recently wrote an article on weight loss um, that you can find on the blog on the website, and BMI was originally created to measure population statistics. It was never intended to measure individual health, but now it's we have the most data points for BMI, and so it's now something that we use across the board to measure health of individuals, which is insane. To take myself as an example, I have been like very overweight or obese for the majority of my 20s and into my 30s. I would have declared myself pretty healthy through those those times, and I wouldn't say that I was obese, but according to BMI, I was, and that was because I carried such a, a high muscle mass. And that's obviously misleading. Why? Because muscle mass is our largest endocrine organ, and it is a huge marker of our metabolic health. The more muscle you have, the more potential you have to be metabolically healthy. Right, um, and so another thing we've normalized, and it's very bad, is commenting on the weight of others. So we will see somebody, you know, we meet somebody, have said, "Oh man, you've lost so much weight. You must be, you must be doing so great." Or on the flip side, you see somebody's gained weight, like, "Ooh, something bad must be happening to that person." And you don't know. You know, a lot of people will lose a lot of weight during times of high stress. That can mean their health has declined during that time. This is why we always encourage people not to comment on the weight of others because you don't know the story behind what's gone on with that person. So to correlate smaller with healthier is definitely untrue, and especially in older populations, because if you get over the age of like 70 and you get into a low BMI, you're at a great, a much higher risk of dying. <laughs> it's <laughs> probably a nicer way to put that, but it is. Kick in the bucket. True. <laughs> no, that's not what you're right. Okay, yeah. Um, Dirt and, nap. And, <laughs> dirt, dirt nap. Uh, and in general, we live in a very obesogenic environment right now, which means that it's very easy to gain weight. And BMI can be misleading because it does, again, it's just a population statistic. It puts you in a narrow band. It just puts us into categories. And as the, the article I was mentioning before, just understanding, having a doctor tell you that you are overweight or obese can trigger this, these negative chronic stress reactions that even if you're otherwise healthy based on blood pressure, cardiovascular health, all these other things, but if you've been told you are overweight or obese, that can actually increase your risk threefold of developing metabolic syndrome, which is just, you know, other factors of basically chronic disease. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think it also, the, the main issue too is that, you know, you can have somebody of the, two people of the exact same weight uh, no matter where they are on the scale, light, it doesn't matter. Two people the exact same weight, and one will have a completely different health status than the other one. So really, like, weight is not the be-all, end-all. Uh, we do live in an environment where we have a lot more caloric availability and less nutrient 
availability, which is certainly a challenge, but you can have two people of the exact same total body weight. And if you have one person who has health supporting actions, like their sleep, their stress management, they live in a good environment, supportive environment, uh, they move regularly, they'll have a very different outcome than someone who is the exact same weight. Honestly, we could be talking about a 100-pound person or a 200-pound person, whatever, um, and they'll have a very different outcome from that person if that person sedentary, eats largely heavily uh, processed foods. And by processed foods, we don't mean like, I don't know, those Terra chips that you got with coconut oil or like something like that that's made outside of your home. We just mean some when you don't recognize most of the ingredients on it or it's from a fast food outlet on a regular basis, there are a lot of oils in there that your body just does not process well. Much, much higher sugar than if you were to make the exact same food yourself at home, like that kind of thing. And we recognize that there are a lot of limitations there that would bring us down a different conversation entirely in terms of like food deserts and and distribution. But if we just look at the health supportive habits they can exist outside of weight. And that's where there was a recent study published uh, from U of T where they put people on a lower sugar diet and they improved their health markers. Their weight didn't change very much, but all their health markers improved. So like blood markers and and fasting insulin levels, like those are very important when it comes to a chronic uh, disease state. And so that's where when we only focus on BMI and the scale, we lose focus of the things that are actually really important, like lean mass. And are you supporting your lean mass with the things that you do every day as far as activity and sleep and recovery and food and and whatnot? And uh, just to share my own story about weight, I... Uh, when I was really unwell, I lost a rapid amount of weight in a very short amount of time. And so they, I was being weighed every single day to ensure I wasn't still declining. And the goal was to obviously gain back the weight I had just lost. I didn't at all. Like I never looked at the scale. (laughs) I got on the scale every single day with my back to it because I didn't need to know. What I needed to know was that I was doing the health supportive actions every single day to get better. That was it. So the arbitrary number that the doctors had set for me was not one that I wanted to be hyper-focused on. I'd never been concerned about, not concerned, um, I'd never had a scale in the house. Like growing up, we didn't. So I don't, I don't know if any of us really knew our weights other than our physical check-ins, but I couldn't do anything to like really influence that number. So it wasn't one I wanted to track. I wanted to track the other things like, you know, my activity level had to be low. Uh, I was doing things like meditation at 16 years old and learning how to reduce my stress levels. And those were the health supportive actions I could take in the situation I was in. And they existed completely outside of the weight. The weight did what it needed to do when my actions were in place. Um, And that's where, you know, even just telling somebody, like, you've got to lose 20 pounds. Well, they might also do that in a very health-deprecating way. So they might yo-yo a diet or starve themselves and and do so in a very stressed-out state, feeling horribly about themselves as if they're failing as a human when it's not the case. And if we instead encourage people... Um, to move as they're able and to eat to the best of their abilities within the resources they have, that alone changes the narrative. And it goes back to that study about, um, it was it was done in a hotel. 
and just telling the hotel staff, the, uh, the ones, the women that were cleaning the rooms, it was uh, it was with women exclusively, I believe, um, just telling them that their jobs were actually very supportive towards their health, they wound up moving more and their health markers went up because they realized that, yeah, all that, uh, we would call that neat activity, like non-exercise activity thermogenesis, just means like you're doing a lot of movement cumulatively <laughs> throughout your day. Um, it it allowed them to see that like, oh, hey, my job's actually really health supportive. I don't have time to go to the gym, but like I'm bending down, I'm picking things up. I'm, they move through a ton of different ranges. Just, I mean, anybody who, who cleans a dozen rooms, I don't know how many rooms per day, but like that's a lot of physical work. <laughs> and as soon as they were told like, your job's actually helping you be healthy. It changed their whole viewpoint uh, about like, oh, I can do this. This is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Psychologically, if, if what you're doing, if you feel like what you're doing is good for you, yeah, it changes you things. will be healthier. If you feel like you're doing things that are awful, I mean, again, that's going to trigger this negative cascade that will be detrimental to health. And just to further on, you know, your story of body weight, if I go to mine, just to let people understand, when I was 20 years old, I weighed 135 pounds. And that put me in the normal BMI. Currently, 38, I am 165. I'm, I'm overweight for my BMI. Like, I am in the overweight category for BMI at my weight right now. And that is crazy as far as yeah. I'm concerned. When I was at my heaviest, I was obese. And again, wildly inaccurate in terms of what should, you know, when we think of obesity, we think, oh, like you're really unhealthy. You know, that's, these are yeah. the things we've normalized society. And it's just not true when you use these metrics that are as much as it's a concrete metric, it's extremely subjective because again, BMI is not based on anything. And a lot of people do think, to your point about weight loss, they think that saying, oh, you look so healthy is like a compliment, yeah. but it can actually be fairly condescending whether somebody has gained weight or lost weight. Like at the end of the day, I'm, I'm sure we can all figure out a whole lot of other greetings than like commenting on someone's body appearance as a form of saying hello. Um, but it's oddly, <laughs> it's oddly standardized in our society in a weird way. It's not something that I partake in. Yeah, and so... Instead of focusing on your total weight or your BMI, think about your lean mass. If you want to be healthier, again, forget those numbers, forget the gravitational pull, forget that. If you are under-muscled and, like I say, over-fat, yeah, that is a, that is a, a, a recipe for long-term unhealth. It just is because your largest metabolic organ muscle is so small. That's going to lead to problems down the road. So focusing on building lean muscle mass, especially as we age, because again, the more lean mass we have, the better we can do at shrinking that gap between health span and lifespan at the end of our lives. So think about your insides. Yes, that's what I like <laughs> to say. Not <laughs> just your poundage, because there's so much more to that. And this takes us nicely into uh, cardiovascular health. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, uh, just on the note of, of insides cardiovascular system is part of your insides. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really helpful to people to realize that everything in your body signals. When people think of hormones, they think of like their ovaries or their testes and it kind of stops at that. And that's, that's not, uh, I don't know why, but I guess we're not really taught otherwise. Yeah, I'm I trying guess. to think of like grade school, high school. I don't think they really talked about it beyond that. Then again, there are certain things that we didn't really even know until the last 10 years. So maybe they're teaching kids now, not sure. Suffice it to say, uh, adipose tissue, which is to say your, your fatty tissue, you have visceral 
stores, which are near your organs. You have subcutaneous stores, which are like the fat under your skin. Um, they serve to signal. So it signals to other tissues throughout the body. Mm-hmm. Likewise, your, your muscle also signals. That's why we've, we've cited this on other podcasts, both with uh, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon and then uh, one of the ones that we did in the second season, but it's an endocrine organ. Mm-hmm. Um, so signaling here in this case is that like, if you have healthy muscle mass, meaning uh, lean mass, meaning you move on a regular basis, however you enjoy moving, you will have healthier muscle mass and it serves to signal to other tissues. And so that's where you get positive signaling feedback to uh, your liver, positive signaling to your heart. You exercise your heart. It's its own type of muscle. There actually also, uh, there is evidence now that your heart muscle secretes things like EPO now. Mm-hmm. Um, we we are don't learning. know. You're we are learning. we are always learning, but the point is, you should know that all of your insides are always signaling to everything else in your system, um, and it can be for better or worse because they can be health promoting cycles of like we get an inflammatory response to exercise, but we also um, get anti-inflammatory aspects there. But if we tend to be more sedentary and eat heavily processed foods and don't sleep and say we also smoke, like if you have all of those things that are health risks, you are living in a more chronically inflamed mm-hmm. state. So regardless of your total weight, there will be issues systemically with the with the insides. Um, the insides. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that is precisely why we are named Move Daily because movement has such a massive impact on cellular communication within the body it's not just about calories and burning calories and energy it is movement changes the way that our insides communicate and it creates who we are so Mm -hmm. and with that said you know when you look if you were to say google what's your what's a normal heart rate um a normal resting heart rate is a pretty substantial range. Like you'll find numbers from 60 to 90, 60 to 100. Like if my heart's going 100 beats per minute, I feel like I'm working out. Like for me personally, heart rate tends to be, um, you know, in the low 40s at night. That's comfortable for me. And by that, I mean like if it's higher because something's happened, whether I'm unwell or injured, and it's higher than that in the 50s, close to the 60s, it's disruptive to something, my sleep. It is feels wrong. off. So everyone has a different normal and uh, normal range. We have a range, and mm-hmm. within that wide range, we can have our own personal normal. It's about trends over time. Uh, and the same is true with blood pressure. We do know that at a certain point, pressure point, we have a higher risk of, of um, you know, we have higher risks of strokes, heart attacks, and you know, pulmonary failure at the extreme, but well, right pump failure. Anyway, (laughs) um, you, we do know that like those are finely tuned pressure systems and we do have outer limits at which they will be well, but again, the range can be fairly broad and it's more important that you know what actions you take every day impact those numbers. So you know, I had a friend when we were in our 20s, she did a lot of dieting with like Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig and things like that. And they, at the time, I don't know if they've changed, but those programs are focused 100% on calorie counting. So she ate like white bread and bologna slices and pop, but it stayed within her calories. Points. So 
she she was then told that she had um hypertension like low-grade high blood pressure and needed to go on medication well she wasn't active she was eating heavily processed foods she was a fairly anxious and stressed person but without any uh, solid management tools of that and you know when somebody in their 20s who's not tapped into any of the actions they can take to take care of blood pressure I understand that there's like we're not making commentary on whether somebody should be on blood pressure medication or not um but the actions that she could also take herself, whether she had to also take meds or not to stay safe, the actions that she could take were not taught and were not taken. So that means like going for walks every day, as long as you're able to walk, go for walks. If not, we can find other ways of moving. Um, You can make sure that your sleep is in check. You can make sure that your stress is in check because that's a huge one when it comes to blood pressure. I'm pretty sure it's in every single cartoon as kids, right? Somebody's head like starts to expand, get red and, and blow off. And that was like <laughs> anyone who drew cartoons was just expressing the sensation of someone's blood pressure going up with rage. Yeah. Um, so there are action items that we can take to take care of blood pressure, our food quality, how physically active we are, whether it's in your job or whether it's, um, you know, taking movement breaks to get you up from your desk, whether it is gym time or, or not. But we need to know that when someone says you have high blood pressure, the question should be okay what is it that I can do throughout my day that will improve it Dane has shared his story before where he used to go to the gym four or five days a week but had high blood pressure that's because he wasn't doing any cardiovascular activity at all and we do see that a fair bit uh, with with gym goers we get all of our encourage all of our clients to go for walks it's like one of the most as long as they're able to that's one of the most uh, beneficial things you can do yeah and my blood pressure was always high. Even when I was a teen, we measured it when I was a teenager mm-hmm. and before I started going to the gym. When I was 135 pounds in my normal BMI, my blood pressure was as bad as it ever was. Mm-hmm. It's a result of many things. It's not, it's not just genetic. There's reasons why your blood pressure is indicating that it is high. And it's just to be about curious about that. For me, I just wrote it off because my dad and my grandma always had high blood pressure. So, so should I, right? False try and look at these other metrics that we're talking about to see if you can drill down and figure out what is the cause. Yeah, and, you know, there are certainly times when we have uh, some clients who've needed medication for things like blood pressure, whether to, like, boost it up or Mm. to bring it down a little, Mm. and there's no fault in that. We need to also do the health supportive things that, like, optimize your heart as a pump and optimize your lungs <laughs> as well. And, and that comes down to simply like cardiovascular activity, any form of ambulation, any form of it. And it doesn't have to be high intensity, but it can also be high intensity. So you could do your long 60 minute cardiovascular activity, whether it's swimming, recumbent bike, cycling, walking, running, whatever it is, or you can do high intensity intervals on any of those implements or even up and down the stairs in your house if if you have stairs i realize a lot of people live in condos that don't yeah so but there are definitely like a, a lot of ways we can address that it's just we have to recognize that like high blood pressure is not totally out of our out of our realm of something we can influence the challenge is is adherence once there is a problem um the challenge is adherence to uh, an active action and protocol. Yeah, and I like to have people think of the heart as the backup generator. The main generator is movement. 
in moving your body around, your muscles are going to pump blood all around the body just by moving. If you think about it in that way, muscles can spare the heart of working too hard throughout a lot of activities. Exercise is going to build a stronger heart and it's also going to spare the amount of work that a heart has to do. So if you think of it in that regards of thinking, okay, the heart, obviously it's going to do work when it has to, we need it. It's, it's, it is extremely important to living. But if you can use your body and move around more, you're going to spare that heart and you're going to have lower blood pressure overall. Again, the magic of movement. That's funny. I wasn't sure where you're going with that. I was like, what's the primary one? You suggesting the brain? I was like, oh, got it, right. So you see here, the brain is the (laughs) number one heart we have. It's like, I don't know where you, it's fine. No, no, that worked out. I just wasn't sure at first. She was so afraid I was going to say something dumb, guys. That's not (laughs) true at all. That is not true. Everyone who knows me is like, "Mm." no, 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 not at all. Um, But yeah, another, another, like your respiratory rate. Ooh, sorry. Smoking the mic. Sounds. Um, Your breathing rate is also something that will influence cardiovascular Mm -hmm. activity, so your heart rate and your blood pressure, and it can be considered one of the vital signs of the body. And what we've found in the past, and we've had some young athletes in this boat, we've had some uh, people who are three times their age in this boat, but anxiety and stress can drive up our breathing rate, and it happens very subtly. It's not like this big obvious thing. And when I've assessed some people who are experiencing a lot of anxiety and pain and we see their breathing rate is at like literally 20 breaths per minute, that's going to drive your blood pressure up and then potentially drop down because if you don't get enough oxygen, that can perpetuate fainting spells. Um, but it's going to further drive up a stressed state. So your body doesn't really know whether you're breathing really heavily because you're being um, like shallow, but heavy in in the sense of of high frequency uh 20 per minute is crazy high and your body doesn't know whether that's because like you're you're i don't know running from something really scary like a fire or a flood which is terrible because those things are happening right now um or you just had a really bad work email come through so it is really important that we know what things we can check in on so if you are active and you do partake in cardiovascular activity and you see that your heart rate is or you feel that your heart rate's trending up um that would be where we have to also check in on like how well are you recovering in terms of sleeping is it high quality how high is your stress screen times i find jack up heart rate if we're on screens late so like we have we have a lot of like this is where if every single night all of us went back to like 1880 Just at 5 p.m., everybody went back to 1880. <laughs> that would be, uh, it would be an interesting experiment, not that we can do that. Um, but we do have a lot, of, a lot of influences that will, outside external influences that will jack up our heart rate. I mean, including people that you don't necessarily communicate with. <laughs> you know, that, that can be, having a high, tense conversation late at night can jack things up, mm-hmm. have an impact on your sleep and then you rinse and repeat the next day. So there are a lot of things and I know that we're being slightly ambiguous with this, but the long and the short of it is that those are vital signs that you can directly impact with all of your daily actions. And when it comes to chronic disease risk, um, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, like they, they take a very long time to develop a really long time and everyone has a different timeline just because everybody's bodies have different tolerance points and you could have, I mean, 
I knew a doctor who ate McDonald's every single day and somehow he's fine and I would be like in a bad way. Uh, So everybody's body has a different tolerance point. But if we can check off that like, yes, I move often and yes, I try to eat as well as possible at home or, or with whole ingredients, that kind of thing to the best of my abilities. And yes, I manage my stress. Like those are things that will help you with cardiovascular disease risk. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, in a very concrete way, because it, it takes a very, very long time to the point where they, one thing I learned recently is that um, they found evidence in terms of arthrosclerosis, sorry, I can't speak today, in young, like 20 to 23 year olds who'd unfortunately died for other reasons but they looked into their hearts and their arteries and found that there's evidence of that sort of plaque buildup. it's subtle but it just goes to show that it can actually start at a really young point and people can have a high high tolerance to the point where like an artery is 90 percent or 95 percent closed before they start feeling angina like symptoms of that chest heaviness um For the record, atherosclerosis is a very hard word to say, so I don't think it's just you. I think I stumble on that, like, literally. Atherosclerosis. Everyone at home, give it a try. Say it five times fast. Ten times. And and last but not least, a lot of people will get their information about uh, cardiovascular-related things from TV and from movies. And heart attacks in particular are these crazy dramatic events, and they don't actually occur that way for the most part. So that miscommunication can actually cause issues because people don't identify them in their bodies. But also there's miscommunication about, you know, the the most recent show where one of the characters got on a Peloton, did a high intensity workout, and then Sex in the City. That one that we haven't watched. Sorry to all the people who like it. I just don't don't Don't. no i've never seen it so i couldn't tell you one way or the other i just have never seen it um but i do know about this particular thing um because it created a lot of outrage and and the challenge there is that people then interpret it and we've had clients who are told by friends and family members oh you've got to be careful with that exercise stuff and at the end of the day that character certainly didn't die because he exercised that probably helped him combat the fact that he was like a heavy drinker and ate out all the time and i mean i don't know about his sleep and stress stress, but um you you it's safe to say you didn't have like that the best inputs correct so it is it is tricky because a lot of people don't necessarily understand that you know there are a lot of things that are within your control and also please don't listen to to tv and movies if you're not sure about something, ask your doctor. And I know that, you know, little kids these days are taught how to identify heart attacks and strokes, which I think is very good because, you know, that way you've got little kids aware of what to look for in perhaps their great-grandparents or grandparents or parents. Um, but I think adults often need those lessons, too, to remind them of what it actually looks like uh, instead of, you know, relying on the dramatic thing in the TV instead of, hey, maybe somebody had some back discomfort and was really like nauseous and didn't feel great for several hours well in a female body that can actually be signs of a heart attack and the need to report to emerge is quite crucial but if we only ever think that it's like this big fanfare of 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 drama as we see on tv then that can 
that can be problematic. Yeah, the character Big was a was an entrepreneur financier, according to the Google machine in front of me. So he probably had a pretty high stress in that job, you know, probably a major <laughs> factor in his uh, heart attack. We're digging in deep to the I, facts I, now, folks. I don't know. Heads the up. The fictional character. Um, but yeah, and, and then that brings us in terms of action items that will influence all our insights. That brings us to the nutrition side of things, which is a sadly uh, complex issue in today's modern era. Yeah. And so nutrition, again, it's, this is where what have we normalized uh, really plays a huge part into what people think is healthy versus unhealthy. And I think the, the biggest thing is convenience when it comes to nutrition, because if we go way back in time, to the 1950s, roughly, way back. way back in time, but that's really when the narrative around food started to change because more women were getting out into the workforce and they, you know, they started being sold this marketing that, yo, you don't need to be cooking in the kitchen and like, we can make foods for you. You just have to pop it in the oven and then you can be a working woman. Like it, it played to the emotions of what was happening at the time in terms of society. And so we had processed foods were really becoming advanced uh, in the second world war. And so we had a surplus of foods at that at, into the 1950s, and we're like, okay, how do we, you know, use these crops or whatever we need to create foods that are more convenience based? And these, and that's where all this was born. And you know, we had the fast food, um, processed food industry really took, excuse me, really took off. TV dinners, that's when they really hit the market, and. So now this is now day and age. It's like, where can we save time? And convenience foods are just so, so normalized. And fridges weren't even in, I mean, they didn't become a household item until the 20s or 30s, I don't think. So it's been roughly 100 years that we've had fridges. And before that, you know, we go back to the Homo sapiens have been around for 200,000, 300,000 years. Modern humans, if you want to go 50,000, 60,000 years, a hundred years is not a long time for adaptation to occur. And there's been so many changes to our food supply and how we quote unquote create food now. Most food is created in factories. And this is the obesogenic environment that I spoke to earlier. We're basically now just sold like it's marketing tells us that this product that was created in a factory is a superfood product versus Coca-Cola, which we know is just full of sugar, but that's not good for you. It's like, well, they're both foods that are ultra processed, have been made in factories, are devoid of nutrients, are high in calories. And yet because a package will tell us one is a superfood and great for us. And the other one we just quote unquote know is bad because it's high in sugar, even though the superfood may have just as much sugar, if not more, and also maybe some horribly unnutritious fats in them. This is where we've normalized one thing and put another one in the doghouse. And yet they are just as bad for human health but these are things that we have now normalized based on what the pretty package or what celebrity has marketed them or what we grew up with. And we're just told by our parents maybe that this was, oh, this is a healthy option and that's now what we believe. So that is to me in terms of what we have normalized as a society is we've gotten so far away from where we were before the 1950s in terms of eating real food and taking the time to prepare it and sit down to enjoy it as a family or as a community. And now it's where can we save time? How can I rapidly get this food into me? And 
Now we're into this whole diet war culture where we're arguing over what diets are best for another. It doesn't matter. It, it, it's a total marketing ploy, and it just gets people to bounce from one thing to another. You mentioned Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, that kind of thing. Every single person who has come to me from those backgrounds has only regained more weight from when they started trying to lose weight because that's all those systems do. They make you lose a bunch of weight, and then obviously you rebound at some point because nobody can live like that forever. This problem gets worse. Oh, I'll go back again because it quote-unquote worked for me the first time. <laughs> I'm like, did it? Because you gained a bunch of weight. And then you go back, and so the health continues to decline. In the article I mentioned earlier, yo-yo dieting has shown to have negative long-term health impacts on the human body. Um, it's if just, you keep doing If you keep doing it, the more yeah. you yo-yo diet, the more likely you are to develop chronic disease. It's, it's not a sustainable approach. Um, and so the whole cooking is boring or cooking takes too long is a narrative that we've just accepted. And now convenience foods are really what's putting us behind the eight ball in terms of our food. Um, and then we have, you know, calorie counting that goes right in to play with the diet culture, ultra, ultra processed health foods, as I mentioned before, and skipping meals, skipping breakfast. It's making it this intermittent fasting. Some people take it way, way, way too far. Um, eating at all hours of the day, because now you can get food 24 hours a day from all these different outlets. And again, if you're getting food at midnight or later, typically that food's probably not super healthy for you. So nutrition is really boils down to what have we normalized. And, it, and if you really want to take it down to the roots, it's that we've gotten so far away from how much time we feel we should be putting into cooking food because we are so busy and we have all these other priorities. If you want to be healthy, this involves putting conscious effort and time into making your food. And people don't like to hear that because obviously we're sold the narrative that, nah, you can just get you know, just eat shakes three times a day that are full of all the vitamins and minerals you need and just power through in Silicon Valley. It's like, I don't know if you've seen those guys, they're not the healthiest guys to be marketing yourselves after. So again, from a nutrition perspective, it's trying to just dial back into, think about the human species and how long we existed making our own food and finding our food and foraging and chopping and making and making a community event and all these things. And we've gotten so far away from all of that that if you want to regain your health or, again, lose a little bit of weight, increase your uh, muscle mass, dial back into how can you become more one with the food process, acquiring your food, cooking your food, taking your time to eat and enjoy your food rather than just having it fed to you by marketing or convenience. And we recognize that, like, it, the accessibility is another of course. massive issue. And... Um, yeah, definitely one that needs to be addressed on, on many, many levels because when people don't have access to real food, it's just like that, I feel, is it's like a human right to clean air, clean water, Healthy and, food. and real food. There's real food. Um, I've been in, in pockets of this world where like you cannot get a vegetable and it's atrocious because it's all being exported from that area. It's not in that area. But if you're sitting in a point uh, where you can have access to foods um that are grown locally like that reduces also the the environmental impact it also makes it more accessible the foods that are in other countries more accessible to the locals of those countries so like there is a huge big picture thing here too but um i, I do think that bringing it back to the center of understanding how important it is and uh 
and not seeing it as a waste of time, <laughs> it, it, which is what's been marketed mm -hmm. um, through all layers of the food industry. I think if we bring it back to like giving yourself permission to add, like actually sit down and eat and hey, take time to learn how to cook if you don't know how to cook or mm -hmm. take time to make a meal if you do know how to cook, but you have previously thought it's a waste of time. Those are the things just like taking a walking break or a movement break uh, at home. Those are the breaks that actually give your brain and body space to process and, and they can regain creative thinking necessary for uh, your learning or your job or anything else, just mental space. So there's a whole other layer that it impacts quite apart from like the input to your body. And there's a book called Primate Change, which is really interesting that talks about how the human body has evolved with the advent of things like mm -hmm. more processed foods and, and fewer foods that need even more chewing. Yeah. <laughs> Pandora's and Lunchbox is the other one that speaks to that yeah, as well. Pandora's Lunchbox is a, yeah. it's a great read to expand on, on, on what we just spoke about. And, and again, like this is, there's a larger socioeconomic conversation to have when it comes to food and nutrition. And there, we really don't have time <laughs> for that. But a lot of our or listeners... Expertise, but we know <laughs> we have we have a lot of privilege. There's a lot of our listeners. If we have the privilege to do so, this is where we have to have these conversations. And it starts with those with the means doing what they can. And that is how we change the food environment for everyone. Mm -hmm. Availability elsewhere. Um, exactly. And when there's food, there's also movement. Freya. Yes. <laughs> well, and if you're eating in a way that feels good in your body. Uh, like not just gives you a dopamine hit, but that actually digests well and feels good, you are prone to move more. So it becomes mm -hmm. like this positive cycle. So if you sleep enough, you'll, and, and you do eat, you know, to the best of your abilities, foods that sit really well with you, you'll also be more motivated to move, which then means that you'll sleep well. And it just cycles through like that. But what's interesting is that when you look into how much movement should be made, when you look at governing bodies, everyone in this country in particular, and probably the U.S. because they have the same or similar guidelines, mm -hmm. is fairly familiar with the guideline of doing 150 minutes of moderate activity per week, which really isn't a lot, a lot. I know it can feel overwhelming, but if you reframe it in terms of where you can get activity throughout your day versus like 150 minutes that needs to go be spent at a gym, which for some people is easy because mm -hmm. that's what they love to do anyway, but for others it can feel like a, a limitation. Um, so if we reframe it, it can actually make it more accessible. But more importantly, like one thing that's alarming is that the CDC, which obviously is not governing in here, it's the U.S., says that how much activity you need is dependent on how much weight you want to lose or gain. And I kind of thought, I'm like, well, Come that's on. a terrible way to establish a really crappy relationship with movement. Mm -hmm. And and that's an issue that I've seen crop up over the years in a d number of different ways, like socially with friends and, and talking to them and obviously with work professionally as well, is that we think of movement sometimes uh, or often through through what we're taught as a way to maintain or lose weight and yes it can contribute to those because it changes how you process food it obviously changes your metabolic uh, rate because the more lean mass you have the higher m metabolism but there is a lot more nuance than that and if we only ever view it as a way of almost like 
punishment needing I need to do this many hours in order to do this to my gravitational pull then it can be really problematic um, or if we think oh my gosh I didn't get this many minutes I'm gonna all of a sudden gain all this weight like that's not that's also not accurate so if we can dissociate it from weight for a minute and actually look at taking care of lean mass which we spoke to earlier and then take care of our joints by movement variability, which we've spoken to in other podcasts, and we can link in here on how to get movement variability and why movement matters. We won't go through all of those again. But if we dissociate it from the weight for a minute, a lot of people, I think, would do a lot better at finding things they enjoy because it takes off that pressure of, like, I didn't push hard enough today, so I didn't sweat hard enough. That means my weight's not going to do what I want. Like, get rid of the weight narrative and enjoy moving and what your body is capable of no matter what it can do I've had enough injuries and that sounds like a weird flex that's not what I mean just (laughs) meaning that like sometimes I could do one or two things and that was it and at least I could do one or two things so I did those things until I could add the third thing and sometimes we're talking about like two floor-based exercises totally fine It's a great place to just add one more thing, add one more thing. And then there are other times when I was 100% overtraining. And this is something I see in the fitness industry a lot because we think that we have some like high bar to, to hold ourselves to. Well, the more experienced you are as a mover, whether you're, you know, in health and fitness or not, the more experienced you are, the less effort you have to put in to sustain that. So sustaining strength like I did aerial last week and I hadn't done it in a year, but because of all the concurrent stuff I do, I was amazed at how much strength for that specific skill was retained. It was pretty surprising, but that just goes to show like it is an accumulation over time. Initially, when we start a thing, we're going to have to do it more frequently because we actually don't have enough capacity to do too much of it typically. You can overdo it, but most people are not overtraining um, in those states when they're learning. But what does tend to happen is if we set a bar of movement and we think that that's what we need to maintain forever, we will run into problems, when we, whether we set a really low bar or a really high one, um, because it, it's just something that has to fluctuate over time. So even if you're, you know, quote-unquote, maintaining your weight, you're gravitational pull again you should separate your movement as something that like what is serving my purpose in terms of the things I have to be able to do day to day what do I have to be able to pick up what do I have to be able to move around the house and that kind of thing and then when we're strength training okay what things make life easier for me (laughs) Uh, when we're cardiovascular uh, we're doing cardiovascular activity what sort of capacity will be easier for me? Am I traveling and doing something that requires a little bit more demand on heart and lungs? Great, then we can train for that. So there are a whole, or even with work, do I have to stand for four hours at a time? Okay, well, believe it or not, you can actually train to have the tolerance for that and also train movement variability. So I think separating it from weight and being more flexible about about our framing of like must be this intensity all the time and just seeing all the things that feel good and seeing which capacities we can grow whether strength uh, mobility you name it if we can build all of those over time then uh, we do far better but the way that movement's often presented is uh, it, it can create 
some barriers. It's like, unless you're doing this extreme thing, then may not bother. You're just not dedicated enough. And that's just not, it's not how it works. Yeah. I mean, take it back to the, the nurses, uh, not nurses study, the, um, the house cleaners that yes. you mentioned before, right? It's, yes. it's, it's just, how do we reframe this to help people build in more activity to their day to day? Right. And to understand it's not trying to like create new time. It's how can you take what you're already doing and build that in to get that, again, that cellular input that you know is going to carry over into your health, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And finally, sleep. Sleep. Sleep is a big one. And I guess if we talk about what, how we normalize sleep, I guess it's just normal to be tired all the damn time and be crushing caffeine and just be tired caffeine, tired caffeine, tired caffeine, tired caffeine. I think a lot of people just don't realize how tired they are. <laughs> and I've been there where I... I don't think I realized that how run down I was. It was just like, you have a task, it's the execution mode of like, this is what I have to do to accomplish the things that are expected of me and you do it and you don't, and then when somebody forces you to stop or you get sick, you realize like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm really, really, really beat. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think, again, it's, it's what's your baseline? Like, what was it like in your household growing up? Like, how much sleep did your parents get? How much sleep did you get? Then you went away to college, and how much sleep did you get? And then you got a job, and, like, do you know what it feels like to be really refreshed and to get steady, quality sleep for an extended period of time and know what that feels like without, you know, caffeine or, you know, other stimulants? You know, a lot of people will think, ah, I'm good because I'm one of the, you know, 2% that actually needs, that can operate on less than six hours sleep. Right. If you're getting less than seven hours sleep, again, if you want to go to CDC, CDC recommendations and statistics, less than seven hours of sleep per night is considered short sleep. If you are getting less than seven hours a night, you are at a much higher, a significantly higher risk for developing diabetes, stroke, heart disease, mental health issues. So if you think you are getting enough sleep, you really just need to ask yourself, okay, like, okay, do you have any other comorbidities? Like, do you have any health problems? Do you have any mental health, anxiety, depressive problems? Do you have uh, any issues with your relationships, your mood, your energy? You know, are there other things that are going wrong outside of you just feeling subjectively like, I'm okay, I'm getting enough sleep? And then try and get a little bit more sleep and see, does that help some of those things that might not have been going so well, right? Well, and the sleep will also impact pain sensation, which is a huge topic within our society. And so people who, there was a study that showed that people who had poor quality sleep, they could predict that post-operatively would need more painkillers because they had greater pain sensitivity. Then there was another study that looked at uh, healthy individuals not in an operative state, but looked at their pain sensitivity. So they did a battery of tests. And obviously pain is, is very complex and hard to measure because there's subjectivity to it. But uh, when you compare person A to person A after good sleep, and their bad sleep, as opposed to taking one person and like comparing me and Dane and our pain sensitivity would be silly, Correct. but taking Dane after he's slept well and then taking Dane again after a slew of poor sleep, pain sensitivity goes up. And so mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with tissue damage, but then that will perpetuate things like people just grasping for that extra coffee to just get through, grasping for the Advil to get through. And, and so it's more about, none of this is about like one-off behaviors. Like it, I've had nights where I've slept two hours maybe um 
it's not about that. And certain books out there will make it black and white enough because mm -hmm. they're trying to sell an idea and the importance of it. And I, I do get that. But they'll make you also think that you're doomed if you've had like a period of insomnia in your life. And that's not true. It is just important that we don't just accept that getting very little sleep and and doing so chronically is necessary or helpful. And I don't know if every society is like that. this, but ours certainly has that sort of side of things. And it is shifting in certain areas, I think, but there is that sort of badge of honor of like, oh no, I only, <laughs> I, I, I'm just tired because I'm working so hard. It's like, okay, but you can work really hard and, and still, prioritize sleep in mm -hmm. fact you may have to work less hard if mm -hmm. you prioritize sleep um, and I understand there are a lot of other factors it depends on your immediate environment your home environment are you helping kids at night things like that it's again it's about the big picture and can you do your best to optimize it or are you like resisting sleep by staying up reading the news until two in the morning on a screen in in your bed mm -hmm. like that's an action item if you feel crummy it's you know, something that you can control. Mm -hmm. And sleep also, it, it just, it has a domino effect into everything. If you're struggling with your, with your nutrition, for example, if you're getting cravings and you can't quite kick it and you can't keep to nutrition habits you're trying to change, ask yourself, are you getting enough sleep? Because getting more sleep will facilitate better nutrition habits the next day. Are you having trouble sticking with a movement and exercise regimen? It's like, okay, are you sleeping enough? Because when you have the energy to, you're going to be more prone to move. And even people who are, you know, high achievers will tell you when they're better rested, guess what? They're more productive at their work. Sleep is one of those things that it's, we just think of it kind of in the back. It's like, I'll get to it when I get to it. It's when I get all my stuff done, I'll get to sleep. But if you move sleep to the front of that line, all those other things that you have to accomplish, even including health, come easily, come more easily. So sleep is one that we, uh, you know, in our society just says sleep when you're dead, that kind of thing. Bad advice. It's slowly shifting, <laughs> thankfully. It's slowly, but there, and there's been more attention it to it. It plays off of everything. So. Yeah, yeah. Again, like everything else, I think there were, you know, we're still very much in the learning process towards what makes a human body tick. We mm -hmm. don't have it all figured out. Yep. And uh, sleep has thankfully received more attention, I would say, in the last five years yeah. than, than in the last 20 prior to that, uh, much like, you know, the heart. We didn't know that smoking was bad. Shockingly, <laughs> And then in the 60s, it was like, oh, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Oh, shoot. So when people pick it apart, they're like, they used to advertise cigarettes. Yeah, it's because we literally didn't have the data. I mean, I know you can logically look at it and be like, oh, yeah, of course, you're inhaling a thing. But what we just point is we didn't know and humans are like, this is a good thing. This feels good. I'm going to keep doing it. Oh, shoot. That's a risk factor. Darn. Nowadays, we have a hard time pivoting to new information. But Yeah, we like, to, we like <laughs> oh. to hold the old information over everybody's head. But you said. It's like, okay. But we were operating on the limited knowledge yep. uh, that be we Be curious. Knew. Learn. <laughs> adapt. I know it's tough. Change is hard. But that's how we get to where we want to go. Thing is, I think everybody listening to this podcast probably moves every day and... and does their best to eat well and but which is totally fine it's just I, I do think it's really mm -hmm. helpful to have a an understanding of um the broadness that is health yeah. and it looks different for everyone which is why it can't be pinpoint in this mm -hmm. beautiful little like one sentence of like mental and physical well-being yeah. it's way more complex than that it's slightly different for everybody 
and it fluctuates over time. Yeah, and again, so that's why if you are struggling with any certain aspect of health, you can check in on what have you normalized and is that baseline or that subjective thought or feeling, is that actually serving you and is that where you should be basing things off of? You can challenge that, be curious about that and it can help you make some change. Yeah. Uh, so the two books we did recommend earlier were Primate Change and Pandora's Lunchbox. Mm-hmm. Both really good reads. Excellent reads. And I think that's all for today. That is all for today. Amazing. Well, as always, thank you for joining us. Uh, again, you can find us on Instagram, move underscore daily underscore EDS or at movewelldaily.com. Thank you for tuning in, and we will catch you next time on the Move Daily Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.